Hi guys, as I hope everyone's having a great day. It is welcome to the Apraxia Foundation podcast. It is we are so excited to start our podcast and we are so excited to start out this first season where we are going to interview speech language pathologists about different topics that they are passionate about, different topics that they want to cover on. And we would just like to also say thank you for everybody that has supported the Apraxia Foundation. As we're currently doing another six-month application process for individuals with apraxia of speech and other communication-related disorders to explore to afford speech therapy services. We we were able to grant in grant in April. We were able to grant four families a total of one thousand dollars speech grants. And yeah, that's exciting. <laughs> and then also we have been able to grant a total of nine different AAC devices. Um, so we're really, really excited about where the funds are going to. All of your funds go directly back out into the community and the forms of grants. If you're interested in obtaining an application for a speech grant, for an AAC grant, we will leave that in the description. There's a form on our website that you can fill out. Please fill it out if you need help. That's what we're here for. That's why we're a nonprofit. Um, and then also as well, it's I just want to be sure that you're also subscribed to our newsletter so you can get all the fun things that we're doing at the Apraxia Foundation as well. Check out our store where we have very, very cute and precious merch. I think that our merch is the most adorable, Laura, because we <laughs> came out with that one that says I roar for Apraxia Awareness. And I'm a 26-year-old man that will proudly wear that shirt. I think it's precious, but... We also, um, um, and then also, also just be sure that you check out our website as well. And you can see the different ways that you can donate to our foundation and how you can get in, involved. Uh, but without further ado, we have Laura Smith here. She's our professional advisory at the Apraxia Foundation. She's our first guest on the Apraxia Foundation podcast. And would you like to tell more about yourself, Laura? Yes, thank you, Jordan. I'm so excited to be uh, on the very first episode of this podcast with you. Um, my name is Laura Smith, and I am a speech language pathologist that specializes in childhood apraxia of speech. I have my private practice in Denver, Colorado, and I really became passionate about all things apraxia after my daughter, who is now almost going to be 14 was diagnosed with apraxia um, back when she was two years, 11 months. So um, yeah, my journey has taken me here um, on this podcast with you and on the professional advisory for your foundation. And I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as Ashlyn is growing up so fast, I know that we talk about that a lot but like she's like looking like a little a adult and I'm like stop it stop <laughs> it up. it's really so crazy to me I was just doing a live last night and I realized that um I said it was 10 years ago that she was diagnosed but it's not it's now gonna be 11 years since she's been diagnosed so quite the journey but um so worth it like she was on a live last night and basically took over she told people to tell her what kind of dogs they have and ask her questions and I was like wow <laughs> it's just amazing so 
It is that's what my mom was telling me when I walked into the kitchen this morning. She actually oh. I saw the paper and she had said that Ashlyn had taken over at the live and I was like, that's what Laura told me. And I really watched it. It was so cute. <laughs> so as on this podcast is we are going to be talking about all things back to school for people with apraxia of speech with students of apraxia of speech. So there's a lot of different topics that we wanted to talk about, Laura. Where do we first want to put our focus? There's a well, lot of I think, things. I know. I think just coming from a parent perspective, I remember when you know, Ashlyn was first going to school and she was for all intents, non-speaking at that point, mm -hmm. um, or pre-verbal. I don't know the, what's the, what's the correct term we're using now? I think that everybody has their different terms that they might prefer, not prefer. I think it's an anti-visual preference. Okay. Yeah. So at least at that time for me, I would have considered her um, pre-verbal and it was very scary because she would not be able to tell me what happened if something happened good or bad and so sending your baby off who can't for all intents and purposes communicate or tell you if something happened is extremely scary so um, I'm sure a lot of parents can relate to that and I know that a lot of parents have a lot of anxiety um, about back to school um, because even when your child is verbal there's that there's still difficulty a lot of times with apraxia um, or in Ashlyn's case apraxia and a language disorder coming home and then narrating what happened that day so even if she was able to speak then that narration that recall narration was still difficult so might not be um, like I think that, you know, I would just like to start with strategies that, you know, might help alleviate parents anxiety. And one thing that was really helpful for me was this idea of a back and forth book. Um, that is something this, that can be very beneficial. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people want to know what that looks like. And for us, it was nothing fancy. It was a steno notebook. Um, and everyone just like put a date and then wrote in it. So if speech had seen her that day, they wrote what they did and OT wrote what they did. And then the teacher of course could write and kind of tell me what kind of day she had. Um, and this, I didn't realize it at the time, but then it also helped me talk about her day with her, even though she couldn't talk about it with me back. So I could be like, Oh, it looks like you sang a baby bumblebee and you read this book and you know, stuff like that. So, um, I still have it too. I should have brought it out too. Really? I do. Like I'll never be able to get rid of it. I don't think. Um, you're, it is. You're just like my mom because it's with my mom. <laughs> it has like everything within just a closet of ours. It's everything from from like what I did in speech. Every speech record like she had. Oh. Kept, but it's like that type of notebook that you are talking about is something as an IEP advocate. I really, really recommend for parents to have because your child, in many, many cases, a child with apraxia, as we were talking about, even if they do have the verbal speech component, people with apraxia can be limited to sometimes saying certain certain scripts that they've mastered so going off of script can be increasingly difficult 
And many of the times they're not going to have that script for what happened during that day. So they might not be able to tell the parent. So I do definitely find that this is really, really good for the parents to have to not only know, like, how did the day go? What did they do during the day? But also like building up that conversational piece within home and within that repetition within itself, within the home environment is what we hope or what I hope for as an IEP advocate with my dog clawing his collar as loud as he can. Um, it, is, it is personally what I hope is that that will increase the verbal speech component within home and being able to tell the parent within future days within the repetition and such, you know, how was their day? What did they do? Who did they talk to? What did they have for lunch? And just all of those different things. Yeah, I mean, parents really want to know that. I remember thinking, gosh, my kid can't even tell me what she had for snack. Like, That's what's <laughs> and it's like, it's nothing you would ever be sad about until you don't have it and you realize what you're missing. Um, and so, yeah, like parents, if you're a professional out there too, parents hang on all of that. Everything Jordan just said, what you had for lunch, it could be so minute. It could be something you feel like was insignificant. They chose the purple crayon instead of the blue. Um, it's so meaningful for a parent. <laughs> right, right, right. Because it's like many, because it's many, many days when I would, you know, come home and such from school, like, I couldn't tell my mom like what I had for lunch or like what did we do that day in class and that's and that's why something as simple as a notebook as you were saying it doesn't have to be anything like fancy by any means I mean you can go to the Dollar Tree get a notebook and just label it as the parent and teacher notebook and then pass that back and forth I feel like you know that just also helps the kid know that that just also helps the kid kid know that I don't know there can be so many feelings of isolation within apraxia and I don't want to get very heavy on this podcast but you know me Laura but there can be <laughs> so many feelings of isolation with apraxia that it is very important that the parent is able to talk with the child about their day because it yeah. lets them know that, yeah. Yeah, like your day mattered to me. What happened to you mattered to me, um, whether it was good or bad. Um, I mean, hopefully never bad, <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah. But, you know, other ideas for back and forth books that I've seen, even if you didn't do a notebook, um, I have, uh, I personally, as a therapist in private practice, we just had like just a, it wasn't a steno, but it was just a regular notebook. I've also done it on like a Google Doc type form. Um, it wasn't a Google Doc because it had to be HIPAA compliant, but essentially we all logged into it and then everyone could write a note, you know, or something like that. Um, other things we've done is just, I've had parents want an email. So they just want like a, like a reply all email chain that kind of goes down on what happens. So I think that just, you know, finding whatever works for the family and the professionals, whatever is easiest on everyone. Um, it doesn't have to be one formula, but I do think that it's really helpful. Yes, yes, yes. 
And it's, yes, and it too, it is with talking about the same topic about accommodations too, but what kind of accommodations as well do you, you think are very beneficial with children with apraxia? But I do know prior into talking about this topic as an I, as an IEP ad, okay, something I have to disclaim is that a accommodations are really different child to child and what works for one child might not work for the next child, which I know that you know that, Laura, but there can be some people who ask like, what sort of accommodations should my child with apraxia have? And it's like, if I don't personally know that child and if I haven't worked one-on-one with that child, I don't know, but we can give some like recommendations on what we've saw has worked for people with apraxia, what hasn't worked for people with apraxia. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think it's important for parents who are listening to this to remember an IEP stands for individualized as the first acronym. So individualized education plan. So it doesn't have to be whatever you can dream up in your head that is going to help your child, you can request as an accommodation. So what we can do as Jordan being an IEP advocate, me being a speech language pathologist and parent to a child with a communication disability is we can give you suggestions, like he said, on things that we've seen um, that were helpful for other children. But don't feel like that that list, um, you need to do anything on that list or that we're recommending or that that list is exhaustive because it's not. So it's whatever you feel like your child is going to benefit from and needs as part of their education plan. So I like that you put that disclaimer in because that's very true yes 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 because it's because something I've been very guilty about saying during IEPs is that we are talking about this one child and we are talking about nobody else but this Mm -hmm. one child so Mm -hmm. it is we so it's we can get as creative as we want because we're talking about what is most appropriate under FAPE, free appropriate public education for this one child, meaning that what a another child gets within an IEP does not matter. It literally, I yeah. could care less when I'm in an IEP for one child. I it's I don't care what Nancy gets. I don't care what Drew gets. I care about what Sally gets. And that's yeah. what I'm there for. Sally. Yeah, I think like a great example that I um I had working in the schools was um we had an area supervisor that was trying to explain this concept to the staff. And the area supervisor said, um, you know, accommodations can be as specific as they need to be for that child. So they had one child in the district who had a stuffed pony, and that the stuffed pony is what regulated them and allowed them to make transitions from home to the bus and the bus to school and school to the bus and bus to home. That's what allowed them to be regulated and feel safe. And it was only the stuffed pony. So literally the stuffed pony for this specific child went into the IEP as an accommodation. Does every, would that apply to probably any other kid? No, but it doesn't need to be because it's an individualized accommodation. So um, yeah, (laughs) not to beat a dead horse, (laughs) no pun intended, but yeah, I thought that was a good example. Right, right. Yes, yes. Because it is with the different accommodations I've saw people with a 
with a praxia get is that it can be very, very generalized as it can be very, very generalized as we don't interrupt the person with apraxia while they're trying to speak because there can be two different things. And I know that we've talked about this where when you interrupt a person with apraxia is that one, we can have to go back on that motor plan that we just created that was so difficult to obtain. Or two, we can lose that motor plan. And if we lose that motor plan, then that can increase feelings of frustration and anxiety. And then if those get triggered, and then when people with apraxia are under pressure or, or they're anxious, speech can be increasingly more difficult, which can further the feelings of frustration. And then that's when we can see people with apraxia, you know, shut down -y, emotionally, or they might have some sort of emotional reaction because their brain is so overwhelmed. So I've saw people with apraxia. I've saw them not. And I know something that was on my IEP as a child is that I was not to be interrupted while talking. And I was given as much time as I needed to say what I need to say. And then I saw people with apraxia too, when we're talking about the frustrations as well. I saw two different things most of the times, but this, you know, just because I'm saying these two doesn't mean that this is only these two that exist within people with apraxia. I saw when people with apraxia get increasingly frustrated that they can either one shut down emotionally, and this was definitely true for me as a child and also as an adult, but two, they can either have that or they can have like sort of, um, and I'm not sure what to label this, Laura, and maybe you can help me, but they can have sort of like a angry reaction where they might be like hitting themselves. I saw that within kids with a practice yeah. where they're hitting themselves or they're hitting their decks or something like that. So for those different ones, we definitely want to tailor around for, for kids with a practice absolute. We want to also get them different coping strategies because mm -hmm. they're going to those different coping strategies within that moment because that's what their brain knows. But mm -hmm. if we can have their brain know different coping strategies and have them keep on practicing that, then it can be more easier for them to go to those coping strategies within the future. Yeah, I definitely think um, that accommodation of not getting interrupted is important. Kind of going along with that would be extended time to answer questions or additional, like it, it could be worded different ways, like wait time, extra wait time. And I've had kids with apraxia need beyond the wait time that you think would be expected. So sometimes we've put in there like 10 to, to up to 20 seconds of wait time. Which 20 seconds doesn't seem like a lot, but if you and I just paused for 20 seconds right now, there's going to be a significant lull in the conversation. People are going to think there's oh. dead air, but people with apraxia can literally still be thinking on how to get the motor plan to get their words out. So, um, yeah, I just had a girl on Tuesday night and she's in fourth grade. And we've been working on um, personal retail, personal narratives, along with story retells. And she can totally do it if given now the right amount of wait time. So she used to employ a coping mechanism, which was like, I forgot, or can you help me? Which, yes, I had to help her at the time, but uh -huh. now I know that she can do it. And so she just came back from a vacation 
And I was like, all right, show me how you met this goal. Let's go, girl. I want the first thing that happened, at least three or four details, and then wrap it up. And it took an excruciating amount of time. And sometimes I looked away too, because when you're giving eye contact to someone, it's very, um, maybe you could speak to it more, Jordan, but I feel like when I'm staring at someone with apraxia while they're trying to speak, I'm raising their anxiety. Do you feel I'm like you're making someone about this? I'm excited because I like was like, literally just thinking about this point because I thought that this was something important to mention. So uh, I'm very excited to talk <laughs> because, yeah. because, because people can think, and I don't know your thoughts about this, Laura, but people can think that eye contact is a must and is necessary when it's absolutely in my own opinion and I see your head shaking no it's not and it like really it's different from where you're from so within the USA it is the norm to make eye contact and people say eye contact is necessary you must make eye contact but there's people in other countries that if you make eye contact it's actually considered in insulting (laughs) it's really funny how that works but for people with apraxia and I know for me when I'm trying to get something a word out and I have a person like looking straight at me it makes me want to rush and if I try to rush that it makes the speech more difficult it makes my anxiety higher then I'm going to get frustrated I'm going to get overwhelmed. I'm going to blink in my mind. Then I'm going to get frustrated that I just blank. So it's literally a cycle that people with apraxia go through. So that's one of the ways. But two, and something I was talking to a person about the other day, and you might have saw this during this live too, is that I'll go like this a lot and I'll look at the back of my head. But it's because, of course, my words are up here. <laughs> but I'm trying to get them out. So if there's some sort of delay between my brain and my mouth, I might look up. And I know for me personally, if I were to try to force eye contact and I didn't allow myself to do that, then it would make my speech increasingly more, more difficult because for me personally, and I know we talk a lot with anapraxia that motor helps motor, but even moving my eyes helps me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever mention that to you but that's something that helps me so when we start to put restrictions for people with apraxia on that you must do this or even like with hand gestures like you must not move your hands and such we're going to restrict that person's speech so I personally like when also we get written within accommodations that eye contact will not be forced Um, because I have definitely saw that where people can be like, no, they have to make eye contact. And I I think it's such a silly expectation to expect a person with a disability to not act like a person with a disability (laughs) because people with disabilities at times they don't make eye contact as much and that's fine because they're a person with a disability right yeah so like well even being the the you know the clinician to this particular girl with a disability knowing that 
my eye contact with my expectation that she tell this personal narrative, I feel like I'm raising her anxiety. So what I did instead is while if she, I'm waiting for her, cause I know we're up to 20 seconds, this is gonna be a significant amount of time for her to get it out. So I got my lotion, I put on my lotion. I, I, I gestured for her to put her hand out cause she loves my lotion. I put lotion in her hand, it helps with the sensory, right? And then she's oh, like yeah. taking her deep breaths and like, then yeah, I mean, she told the whole retail, but it took that. And I was like telling her dad, I no school staff is gonna understand this is how it works. They're gonna say she doesn't know how to do it. And actually it was so funny because then as she was standing there, I told her, cause we've learned strategies instead of saying I forgot or whatever, I want her to say like, I'm thinking or I'm still thinking or I need a minute. Um, and so I told her, I was like, okay, so like when you're in school and they ask you to do your story retell, what are you going to say if they're rushing you? And she goes, I forgot. And I was like, no, like, you can do this. We're going to make sure the staff knows that you just need extra time and it's okay to have extra time. So, um, yeah, that's huge. I think for parents to know too, because, because you're right with those coping mechanisms, people with practice can say, I for God, I don't know when you do, but you know, within the social com component of it, you don't see other people saying like, I need a moment. So I think from there, I think even working within the accommodations portion, we're, we're working on self-advocacy and being like, you know, it's if the person needs a moment saying like, hi, I need a moment or even doing some sort of hand gesture that tells the school staff, tells the teacher that this, that this student, this child needs a moment to get out what they have to say, because we don't want to increase those feelings of isolation because even if they don't tell others what they have to say, it's not like it leaves their brain because it's yeah. within their brain yeah, and that's going to bother them. Yeah, yeah, totally. But these were all really good points though. I'm really, really happy that we talked about, well, I think that you could tell by my face, I was really happy we talked about the eye, con <laughs> about the eye contact portion, but also with the, um, with the coping mechanisms that people with apraxia can have because to many people and I know to teachers they're going to assume if they say that I forgot that they actually forgotten or if they say I don't know that they actually don't know when that's not always the case. Other coping mechanisms kids employ might be to be silly. They've learned that being silly gets them out of it or makes the class laugh at least. So it doesn't point out their disability, um, mm -hmm. which looks like behaviors to a teacher or to staff. And then that child is in trouble. And some children would rather be in trouble than be publicly mortified. So they're fine with that. Um, and like people don't know this unless you really know apraxia intimately, I feel like. Um, so yeah, just, I, you know, another thing that's so interesting, Jordan, I've never talked about this on lives or anything either, but something that, um, I don't know if, so there's this, we, you and I have talked about this word finding issue. That's not a word finding issue. It's an apraxia moment. Yeah. Um, that's not what this podcast is about, but let's just say <laughs> a child with apraxia knows what they want to say, but they have a hard time getting it out. So they might say a different word. Um, instead, or it just looks like they're having a hard time, you know, finding the word. Um, 
parents for some reason I don't know if it's a way like like let's say the kid wanted to say I saw the elephant at the zoo and mm -hmm. um the kid the mom was like who did you see at the zoo and the kid can't find the word so they're sitting there like uh, like they know what it is we know they know what there is so then parents will say was it uh and they'll do something silly was it a uh, chicken no and then everyone will laugh I, this has happened more than once which is why I'm bringing it up the kids develop that as a coping mechanism. So when they can't come up with the word, then the kid will be like, it was a chicken. <laughs> and then the parents laugh and everyone laughs. I'm like, silly, you're so silly. And, and I'm like, uh, actually, this is a coping mechanism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then they're like, wait. So then when I really test them and we have to be serious, then the parents are like, oh my gosh, this is an issue. And I'm like, yeah, you taught them a great coping mechanism. <laughs> that's what I like was, that's what I was about to say too, because what it sounds like to me is that this is something that the parents could possibly do as a coping mechanism themselves, because it is we know for parents with apraxia, and, and I know Laura, he sent me this research, um, I think it was like a week back or so, but it was for um, moms with apraxia, you know, struggling with, you know, mm -hmm. mental health and such. So, you know, there's absolutely different coping mechanisms that parents have. And even unknowingly, they can pass them on to their kids. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's like not at anybody's fault. No. But it's just that, you know, we like need, it's just that we need to be mindful of, you know, what can, you know, what is a coping mechanism versus like what isn't. And we need to really be sure for people with apraxia that we're having them develop really healthy coping mechanisms from a young age so that's why I loved when you talked about your client you know doing the lotion doing the sensory and doing different things like that like I know for me personally when I'm having an apraxia moment I might like grip my hands I might put my um, fingers around my like rings and such because it gives me that pressure I might get out like a sensory toy to get out just that little built-up frustration because I want to get it out then because if I'm not going to get it out then it's not like it's going to leave it's going to build up mm -hmm. so we want to be sure for people with apraxia that they're able to decrease that frustration as much as they can and I know for some some kids with apraxia when I've worked with their IEPs like we do different sort of like sensory toys within the room we yeah, might do like a like we might do like a bouncy chair, like a wobble seat. Mm -hmm. um, I know how we talked before this live, Laura, that I have a sensory mat. We might give them the sensory yeah, mat. I love that. Um, and there's different things like that that we will do because it's never just with apraxia. It's never just focusing on the verbal speech component because we're talking about a whole person we're talking about a human being with the emotions and feelings so we have to be sure with apraxia that we're looking at how does it affect the person um not only with the speech but emotionally 
socially and having those different difficulties and how can we help those different difficulties? That's a great point. Going back to just the sensory objects that you might pick to help a child. Ashlyn's, um, you know, she started in second and third grade to develop this picking her hangnails and because she has a high tolerance for pain, she was constantly bleeding and it was all over her shirt. And so Mm -hmm. to, um, as a replacement for picking her nails, we weren't, we weren't going to squash the picking because the picking was was just symptomatic of something going on underneath. So right. we don't want to repress the picking, but how can we how can we make that into a way that's not harming herself? And so right. um, her para had this idea of a rubber band ball, and the rubber band ball just allows you to pick, 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 and it was so brilliant. Um, but then after the rubber band ball, after that, she started moving to her lip. And then she was picking all of the skin off of her lip. And so then she ended up getting a sensory bag where we had the rubber band ball in case she picked her nails. Then we had chapstick and she could just keep rolling chapstick around her lips instead of picking her lips. Mm. Um, And yeah, so again, is that going to be a blanket accommodation for everyone? Of course not. That's so individual. Um, So just recognizing there are these general accommodations, but also recognizing, please think about individualistically what your child could benefit from and then advocating for that. Yes, yes, yes. Because as a child too, and I don't know if you've heard this a lot, Laura, but, but I used to bite at my like shirt and my like so and just like you um so it's like personally what what I had to do is we did things like gum and such and I would chew gum because yeah. that would help me you know instead of like chewing on my shirt, yeah. shirt and my sleeping like soaking wet and gross um we just want to do different things like that and such and once again this is going to look very different kid to kid so really too on the topic of sensory it's if you notice any sensory you know things within your child which I know you know there's a theory lore that we've talked about that people say that apraxia and sensory could be possibly and don't want to misquote this, but tight. And I know there's no actual, to my knowledge, any factual research about that saying that that's 100% true. But I know that this is something that we see a lot. So definitely consulting with an OT, an occupational therapist to determine your determine your child's needs, I do believe is absolutely great. Yes, absolutely. I'm trying to think of any other accommodations if we wanted to talk about that before moving on. What are some other general ones that you might suggest, Jordan, as an IEP advocate? I think that's some that I might absolutely recommend. Some would some would definitely be in some would definitely be including. I know that we talked about the eye contact. We talked about the external extended verbal time but also something that I do want to definitely say is that you know as people with apraxia as they grow up it doesn't mean that they and this is something we talk about all the time Laura but it's not like you outgrow your apraxia and such and the elementary school years looks a lot different than the middle school years and the high school years because you might have like presentations and you might have you know group projects and such and I know for me personally when I was becoming a teenager 
Um, I didn't have to do any verbal presentations within my high school because I went to a private school. But once I got into college, I had to do these and nobody, you know, nobody prepped me. Nobody, you know, told me, you know, what to do and such. But during this time, I was working with an SLP one-on-one and something that me and my SLP would work on is that we would work on these presentations prior to me doing the presentation. So we would practice them and we would re rehearse them and we would have different, you know, things that I could do during the presentation. So if I needed to write out what I was going to say during that presentation, I would write it out because for me personally, when I read and talk at the same time, speaking is a lot more easier for me personally. So that's something that was a very individualized accommodation. I got to inform myself, but then also, then also I had different options as well. Like I had to be sure that I got extended time for verbal presentations um, because Mm -hmm. for some, they wanted to time me. And I was like, you can't time me. That's not (laughs) going to work, buddy. It's not going to work out in your favor (laughs) or in my favor. Right. But, um, it's, I know for some professors I had in college, they would be like, oh no, you have to do within this time. So that's, so that's when I went to my 504 center and I was like, no, this is what I need. And this is what I'm going to get. So I got in that extended verbal presentation time. Um, I know that something I got in as well is that I got in the option to present one-on-one with just the professor. Um, and this is something that really helped me at times when I was having really difficult speech times. I would have the one-on-one. Like how you... I think that you froze, Laura. Oh. Yeah, you did. You froze too. <laughs> where did it freeze off at? Um, just that the uh, 504, you were saying that you went back and said, no, I need these accommodations for, for this. Oh, yeah. So like I went back to my 504 center said that I need the accommodations for this. But some of the different accommodations we were able to get to is that I got the chance to present one on one with the teacher if I wanted to. And that and it's that was something at times that I did need because we know um, for people with apraxia, like every day with our speech can be different and there were some days when I would plan on giving a verbal presentation to the class but my speech would be increasingly more difficult and I knew under that pressure that simply I would go through a very difficult time where I would get increasingly frustrated and anxious and to be sure that I was taking care of myself I would do that one-on-one with the professor I also, too, I got in the chance to be able to pre-record my presentation. So if I wanted to play oh, the awesome. audio to the class, yeah. um, and that could definitely, that could be easier at times. But then also something else I had to get, there's a lot to this, but it's a lot that I <laughs> No, learned. it's good. There's a lot that I learned because something that they tried to test on within my college years is that one of the grading rubrics, Laura, was how clear 
was your speech. No. And I looked at the professor and I met him after class and I said, I have a speech disc. Yeah, seriously. He can't grade he can't yeah. me on this. And he was like, Oh, well, I have to. That's when I went to my five. And I said, I have a speech disability. This is literally, no, you can't do this. And that's when they waived that for me. Um, yeah. But there's different things like that, that, you know, we don't think about when they're, you know, young kids, because most of the time for young kids, we're not doing verbal presentations. Um, well, actually, Jordan, I'm even thinking about like in preschool and kindergarten when we do show and tell, that is a verbal presentation. And so yeah. all those accommodations that you just mentioned for college could be applicable to your preschooler or kindergartner. The parent could pre-record. The SLP could pre-record. The, the child could just do a show and tell to the teacher. Like, um that's what was going through my head when you were saying it so I do think actually that we a you were correct in saying we don't think about these kids like these things when they're younger but b they are applicable also to kids when they're younger yes yes but it sounds like from our conversation that they look it sounds like from our conversation that they look different from when they're kids that it's going to be like a show and tell or it might be because I'm trying to think of the different things I did when I was a kid. Like we did like the show and tell, like we might bring up like our favorite book. We might have to read like a page from a book mm -hmm. during class. Cause we used to change from like page to page when I was in elementary school. And I know for that, even, you know, these are different things that, you know, we should be looking at if those kids are having to read during class. And then also for people with apraxia, if they have difficulties with, reading and such that makes me think about you know what do we do for those kids um so AAC comes to mind with that um other things like in show and tell a lot of times you're allowed to take three questions or you know two to three questions from the class and so in that case those questions could be um predetermined so we would predetermine the question so the child with apraxia right. knows what the question is going to be as opposed to just any question um, you know, and again, it's all going to be individualized, whatever you think is going to help your child be successful in that particular task. So, um, mm -hmm. maybe there's no question. Maybe that's what is going to be, you know, for the child to be successful. And that's fine. Like it's whatever that they need to be successful. Right, right, right. Because this goes back to the topic that this is very individualized. This is really what's going to work best for your child. So I think definitely for parents, what I would recommend on this topic as well is that I would just see different things too that you notice at home that helps your child. Um, and I know for parents too, parents can sit, sit on within the sit on within the day with their child. And that and that might be very beneficial for your parents too, because parents, when it's when you go into that I, IEP meeting, as you're an equal member of that IEP team. So you, so what's really funny is that I tell parents that they have more rights than what they think that they have. Yeah. But it's really, really true because you got to, you know, say, you know, I think this should be in a comma, or I think this is 
this should be in a accommodation. And then you work with the whole IEP team and seeing like what's going to be in the best interest for your child. Yeah. And kind of continuing like piggybacking on that is that I always tell parents that you're an expert in that room too. You're an expert on your child. So the SLP is an expert on speech and language. OT is an expert on occupational. The teacher is an expert on education, but not as it relates to your child. You are, you know, your child the best. And it is very intimidating to be up against all of these experts as like this one parent. And I do recognize now how intimidating that is, but um, don't doubt your worth in there and what you bring to the table because you know what, um, you know your child best, so. Right, right, right. And it's on the same topic too. It is you, and it's on the same topic too. It is you can bring any person to the IEP that knows your child too. Yeah. So, so it's if you want to bring, it's if that's an aunt or if that's an uncle, or if that's a grandparent, if that's a really close family friend that has um, been with your child a lot, it's you can bring those people to the IEP. Yeah team and that's what I definitely recommend for parents because I think just having that support even if it's not you know an official like IEP advocate if it's not their speech language pathologist if they work with privately within an SLP you know just having a person there for the parent I think can really make the parent just feel more self-soothed during that yeah it's a very intimidating situation to be in, um, for sure. Well, I know we're kind of, um, you know, getting close on time here. I did want to just make sure that we hit um, making people aware of, you know, resources that parents can get um, and access through the Apraxia Foundation. So um, I know at the start of school, uh, you know, it's you want the teacher to know about your child. You want the teacher to understand apraxia. You want the teacher to have read the IEP that has the accommodations in it. Um, and in a perfect world, all of that would happen. But the teacher is, you know, dealing with 28 to 30 kids sometimes. And how do we make sure that, you know, they really know what all of these accommodations are at the start of school? How do we set up this back and forth book? How do we get them? information quickly on apraxia and explain our children to them um and jordan you just have some great resources i think for that um through the apraxia foundation if you wanted to maybe touch on that yes yes so um um so it's on so it's on the apraxiafoundation.org it is what you can find on our website is that you can find our brochure for the apraxia foundation that talks what is a what what is apraxia how does apraxia affect affect the child and a lot of more different facts about apraxia that we definitely want to be sure that trusted adults who are working with your child know about apraxia so we have that resource we also have a teacher resource guide as well on our web website as well that i would definitely recommend for parents we we're also coming coming out with an all about me sheet where it is you can write down what is your child's name and some different things about your child because it's in a perfect world once again 
And so on the very first day, the teacher would have read through the IEP and such. But of course, when is the first day of school? And when teachers are dealing um, with 25 through 30 kids, anybody's brain gets overwhelmed during that time. <laughs> so just having that sheet for the teacher can really come in to play and be very, very beneficial for not only the child, but then also with the teacher. But some of the more like tips that I would recommend for parents is that I would definitely also go to the open house if your school's having an open house. Go to the open house, go up to the teacher, introduce your child to the teacher, and just tell them about your child because having that face with yeah. me can really, really help. Um, not it's not only the child, but also the teacher as well. So I would definitely recommend for everyone for everyone watching this podcast to um, definitely check out those different resources. And as if you need any support from us, you can email us at the Apraxia Foundation at the Foundation.org because I had to make it the longest email ever. But you can email <laughs> us there. And um it's we're more than happy to give you any one-on-one assistance if you need any tips on how to navigate IEPs or if you have any questions about you know your school what is your child's rights we're more than happy to help you and um, we're also on Facebook and Instagram at the Apraxia Foundation as well you can shoot us a message you can leave a comment and we also have a support group as well for the Apraxia Foundation as well that you can also join um, and it's ran by a few administrators and we are more than happy to help you out during any time well thank you so much for having me with for this um for the very first episode of the podcast and for our special back to school edition thank you thank you thank you and it's and it's thank and it's thank you so much for being part of the pod podcast for being part of the Apraxia Foundation. And as for anybody watching this live, it's be sure that you follow our Facebook page, our Instagram page. Be sure if you want an application for speech grants or AAC grants, you go to our website at theapraxiafoundation.org. You can fill out the contact form and we will contact you back with a form. You can also join our newsletter as well to get updates on your on your apraxia family and once again you can go to the apraxiafoundation.org you can get merchandise to support the foundation or you can donate to the apraxia foundation where your funds go to families in need of speech therapy assistance and aac assistance but thank you so much for watching this live and we can't see you, and we can't wait to see you on the second episode. Hi. <laughs>